0: Welcome to Disrupting Japan, straight talk from Japan's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for joining me. Water. It's one of the most common molecules in the universe, and you personally are made up of about 60% water. There are a number of significant problems today that revolve around water, but water is rarely the focus for startups. And today, we're going to explore why that is, and why that might be changing. Today we sit down in a properly socially distanced manner and talk with Robin Lewis, co-founder of MyMizu. The MyMizu app enables you to find places to refill your water bottles all over Japan. And the company itself exists in a very interesting space between nonprofit and a regular for profit company. Robin and his team are already making an impact in Japan, and we have a deep dive into how startups can be a force to achieve meaningful social change. The challenges of balancing the need for revenues with staying true to your social mission. And we brainstorm about possible monetization strategies that could enable that. And also, you'll learn something that will probably really piss you off about how recycling is done in Japan. But you know, Robin tells that story much better than I can. So let's get right to the interview. So I'm sitting here with Robin Lewis, the co-founder of MyMizu, a water refilling app. Uh, Thanks for sitting down with me.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Tim. I'm excited to be here.
0: Actually, you can explain MyMizu much better than than I can. So what is MyMizu exactly?
1: At MyMizu, what we're doing is we're on a mission to help people live more sustainably, uh, starting with plastic bottles. We accomplished that in, I'd say, four main ways. Uh, Firstly, we have the app, which you mentioned. And it's essentially a tool where you can find uh, 200,000 locations around the world where you can take your reusable bottle uh, and refill there for free. And so this includes like public water fountains, like in train stations, in uh, parks and so on. But also we have this network of what we call refill partners. This is cafes, shops, hotels and other businesses where you can walk in, you can get your water and then walk out. It's that simple.
0: So tell me about your customers on on both sides. So. What kind of shops are acting as these free real refill stations, and who are your users? Are they a particular like demographic or a particular age?
1: The the main uh, businesses that are part of our refill network, as we call it, uh, it really ranges from like tiny mom and pop stores all the way to to really big uh, brands. So it, it really depends. As I say, we have everything from cafes, restaurants, hotels, fitness centers, uh, tourist information places so there's a huge range for the refill
0: partners what's their uh why are they on the app are they hoping to get additional foot traffic or are they just they're concerned about single-use plastics and they want to contribute to a solution why are they signing up
1: so our pitch to the Refill Network partners is that it's a really simple way to contribute to the environment. It also, as you say, brings in foot traffic. It's a great way for, to get people through the door, smelling the coffee, seeing the, the product, whatever it is. And that's the first step to building a, a new relationship with a potential customer. So it's really simple. It's, a set, it's free and it's a great way to, to get new customers as well. Yeah, actually,
0: I, I want to really dig into the business model in, in just a minute. But just to be clear, you, you guys are, you're not quite an NGO. You're, you're not quite a for-profit. You're sort of in a unique, uniquely Japanese corporate
1: <laughs> structure, right? So in terms of how we work, we consider ourselves a full purpose organization. And as you said, we're not a for-profit uh, Kabushigai structure. Uh, We operate under what's called a general incorporated association, which is closer to the the, the non-profit side. And in terms of philosophy, we're really uh, trying to ensure that we can continue our work and scale up through a social business model. So we don't necessarily rely on donations. We really have these kind of um, various projects that bring in revenue to ensure that we can continue what we do.
0: Okay. And I want to dig into the business model specifically in just a minute. But before that, I want to back up. You and your co-founder Mariko founded Mizu pretty recently, just launched it last year. And I heard that it was based on a trip you took to Okinawa like the year before or something like that, right?
1: That's right. So the story of MyMizu began in April of 2018. uh, And my co-founder Mariko and I were on a trip to Okinawa, which is one of my favorite places in the world. And we were taking a walk along a beach one day when we discovered this quite significant pile of rubbish that had floated in from the ocean. Fishing gear, flip flops, uh, cosmetics, packages, all kinds of stuff. But the biggest culprit we found was actually pet bottles. And so the, kind of, the pin dropped because we, we, we thought, hang on, there are so many pet bottles, many of them bottled water. In a country where we can drink the water around us, we're so fortunate to be in this extremely uh, good situation with safe and drinkable water. So we thought, okay, well, let's, we've got to fix this problem with the source.
0: Was that the start of or part of the, the open loop initiative where you're doing a lot of beach cleanups and things?
1: Yeah. I, I mean, at that point, we thought, okay, we've got to do at least two things. One is tackle the issue at the source. Let's ensure that we replace the current system in terms of buying bottled water. And then secondly, let's get people together, build community, and, for example, do beach cleans where we can actively remove the litter from the rivers, from the oceans, and also you know, educate people, engage people, and create a movement. It, I mean, that's
0: that's awesome. But I, I just –
1: cleaning the, the, the
0: beaches with the, the trash, it, it's like, like Sisyphus rolling the stone up the hill. I mean, the trash washes in with every tide from – God knows where.
1: No, I, I agree. I, Listen, I, I am under no, you know, impression that we can clean up the entire world. That's that's a huge task, and that's why our main focus is really this reduction component. That's fundamentally reduce the usage of plastic. But I think the power of, for example, of beach cleans is that it's a great way to engage people and for people to see the impact with their own eyes, and that helps shift behavior on a daily basis. I think if you sit in a classroom and you watch videos and you hear people talk, it's one thing. But if you go to the beach, the river, and you see all this crap in the oceans, then it, it really hits you. And after you spend an hour, you know, bending over, getting sweaty and picking up these little bits of uh, cigarette butts and whatnot, you remember that and it, it has an impact.
0: Okay, so, so the, the purpose of getting 30 people together to go clean up the beach is not not so much just to clean up that particular beach, but to, to motivate people to change and support environmentally friendly policies and vote for politicians who will support environmentally friendly policies as well.
1: I would say that for me is the kind of the bigger goal. Um, but I think the, the picking up trash is, is a great way of visualizing the impact of people working together.
0: Awesome. Well, let, let's dig into the business model. I mean, it's, it's easy to see why, why my Mises is getting so much attention and you've been earning a lot of like really well-deserved awards, but what is the business model? I mean, the app is free, the stores don't pay for the foot traffic and the water is free. So how, how are you making money on this?
1: You know, it's funny. I, I think I get asked this question every single day.
0: <laughs> it's, it's, it's it's not obvious. It's no, a... <laughs> and
1: I think if you Google my maimizu in Japanese, like the first thing that comes up is maimizu and then business and So I think there are a lot of <laughs> curious people out there. <laughs> so to break it down, and, and I should be perfectly honest from the beginning, I, we, we've we had to shift many times and we've kind of been, you know, making things up as we go. But I think we've finally found uh, a number of ways to to generate a revenue to continue what we're doing. So firstly, uh, it's our work with corporates. We do provide now a paid version of MyMizu. It's called the MyMizu Challenge for companies. We currently have a company uh, with I think 70,000 employees who is using the uh, MyMizu platform. The the difference here is that you can create teams within your organization. So you have the HR division versus the uh, tech division versus sales division, and they're all competing to see how many plastic bottles they can save by refilling their bottles. So it's team building, it's corporate social responsibility, and the best thing is we can also visualize the impact of each each division and the company as a whole. So that is now a a product that we're offering as a paid service. We also do other work with corporates, including uh, joint communications, joint product development and so on, all around sustainability. Uh, so that's kind of the corporate bucket. The second bucket is uh, we provide services to local governments. We essentially work with uh, local governments like Corbett was one of our first uh, joint projects where we're essentially increasing the number of refill points. We're helping them tackle uh, pain points, including Plastic waste, right? It's really expensive to get rid of plastic waste. Um, And also the issue of, for example, dehydration and heat stroke. Every year we're getting more and more people who are going to hospital and, and some of them are passing away because it's getting hot and they don't have enough water in their system. So we are now working with local governments as well. And then in the third bucket, this is the most simple one, uh, we sell products like bottles. So we have uh, my music bottles uh, available for sale on our website, on our online store. And also uh, we have uh, retail partners where we sell our bottles in the physical stores as well.
0: Well, we'll definitely put some links to that on the show notes. But Nye, I I see it, it is this classic conflict between NGO revenue streams and more traditional for profit revenue streams and it sounds like you guys are sort of sort of in the middle there
1: yeah you know it's funny if i can go off on a little a little story when i studied at university i studied business and i remember that everything was about profit maximization right everything was about maximizing shareholder value and of course that makes sense right but to me i was thinking like surely you know that surely there's more to what companies provide to, to society you know it's not just about Uh, externalities, you know, like polluting all this stuff and then internalizing all the profit, surely there is a component where companies can actively uh, solve social environmental problems.
0: That concept of maximizing shareholder returns is actually a pretty new concept in corporate governance. Up until the 70s, that was not, people didn't think that way. The idea was that companies did have a responsibility to the community. So historically speaking, a relatively new development and, and one that hasn't necessarily taken root outside of, of the U.S. And, and some of the Western world.
1: Well, I mean, interestingly, I, I think Japan actually has a really unique model of, of uh, responsible business. So there's this concept called Sampo Yoshi. Traditionally, this is dating back to the Meiji and Edo periods. There was a group of merchants called the Omi Shoning, the Omi merchants. With every transaction they made, they would ensure that there was three bits of value added to the buyer, the seller, and society, right? It's a very kind of similar model to what we hear today about triple bottom line, and all these things. So Japan is actually a very responsible business environment, I, do, I believe.
0: I, I think so as well. But yeah, I mean, it is a challenge. And I think I, I, I work with a, a number of social impact startups, and it always is that challenge between environmental or, or mission sustainability and, and business s- sustainability. Yeah. I worked in the energy industry for a while and very frequently companies will hit a point where it's like, well, if if we turn left a little bit here, we can make a whole lot more money, but we have to leave this social impact thing kind of behind. <laughs> and it's, it's challenging.
1: Yeah. But I mean, I, I, the whole kind of social... Entrepreneurship or social business ecosystem in Japan, specifically, I think is really growing quite significantly. I mean, you see more and more accelerators, you see more and more uh, investment, you see more and more uh, entrepreneurs who are primarily tackling social problems, but of course they have to generate profit and, and whatnot as well. So this whole purpose and profit uh, intersection, I think, is growing.
0: It is, it is, but it's. I've got to say a lot. So I I I mentored a number of those accelerators. And I always feel, I have a love-hate relationship doing it. I I mean, I love interacting with startup founders almost in any circumstances, but I'm always the guy they bring in to talk about like pricing and business models. And and usually they're like university students who've gotten all of this validation that they're doing good for society. And everyone's like, yeah, you should do that. And I'm like the destroyer of dreams saying like, No, man, that's that's not going to work. No one's going to pay for that. It's like, have you have you talked to people who told you they're paying that? Then they're not going to pay for that. And it just it, it's hard.
1: <laughs> but that reality check is also really really important, right? I mean, I, I think we've had <laughs> I think several so, people yeah. telling us that as well, um, and we're somehow still around. So <laughs> I think it's important.
0: But I don't know. I mean, there, there's. Um... You want to brainstorm monetization strategies? I'm happy to.
1: <laughs> well, now I'm happy. I'm yeah, always, why not? Listen, I'm always happy to have uh, feedback, advice, ideas. So, yeah, I'm more than happy. Yeah, it's
0: just the two of us here. So, okay. No, <laughs> <laughs> <Okay. laughs> um, no, nah, nah, like just off the top of my head, um, uh, I, I'd say you need to look for where that information is valuable. So I'd say anything, like maybe international sporting events, uh, like where they had the Ru- Rugby World Cup, or anytime you get a lot of travelers coming into a, a small area or coming into a city, the host of the event might pay for like Miami Zoo. And there's there's chances to tie in with the event too, with the bottles and everything, right? Yeah. And you might get venues that are actually willing to to like pay to be part of that particular promotion. Um, cities actually might pay like yearly licenses to, to have it done all over a given city. And then you could actually provide data to them on, on, uh, it's a mix of public and private use, but I'm sure they'd want to have the data of where people are filling up. So they'd know where to put water fountains maybe.
1: This is actually an area that we've uh, been exploring. I, I mentioned that we've, already, we've been working with local governments and, uh, you know, we have had these kinds of ideas. Um, I would say it's maybe a bit of a longer-term project but that's definitely is something that we're, we're considering and another thing that we're looking at is also uh, for example you know i'm not a, a tech guy and I, and I can't speak too much in detail to this um, but for example the idea of making a, an api where we can share our data we have quite a vast database of drinkable water and so for example having that connect with running apps with cycling apps with other apps where people need to hydrate as they're out and about um, that could be an interesting idea and we're currently exploring that
0: Actually, there's a couple of towns that I know are making a real push towards uh, inbound tourism for cycling and hiking and, and has that whole like echo consciousness that would probably be really good to partner up with. And done right, I bet they'd, they'd pay for that.
1: I'd love to, love to give it a shot. I think there is
0: a monetization model that you can stay true to your mission mm. and, and still have a more sustainable business
1: model for sure for right now you know, one of our key focus areas when we're talking about long-term revenue and so on is the the my music challenge which is the paid version of my music for companies and i'd say like the beauty of that is that we get to work with with big companies with lots of employees which means we're automatically reaching more people and we're helping them reduce their plastic footprint um while also having uh, a sustainable source of revenue so it's not just like hey we're gonna you know we're gonna sell whatever and you know not going to have a great impact on on the environment. I think that really actually hits this sweet spot where we get the scale of large organizations. And then we also have this financial component too.
0: I I like that. The the reason I'd be nervous relying on that is that those kind of HR programs, there's a lot of like novelty seeking. Mm. It might be something. And I mean, I don't know in your case, but I'm talking very general broad strokes that, you know, this type of an event might be trendy for a year or two. And then a new one comes in or they say, ah, maybe we did that last year. We want something different this
1: year. Mm -hmm. I
0: I think it's, I think it's a good one, but I'd be nervous about relying too much on it.
1: No, fair enough. Yeah. And I, and I think that's why it's so important to always keep uh, coming up with, you know, with, improvements new ideas and and so on for our our products and services i mean one other thing that we're currently exploring which is which is quite exciting is we're currently kind of in discussions with a beverage company about how we can do the same thing with not just water essentially other uh, beverages because that is a huge area of opportunity Um, and so we're kind of figuring out how we can make this work for the uh, the roadmap ahead
0: oh awesome that's exciting times
1: (laughs) we'll see how it goes we we're always changing. We we're always kind of thinking of new ideas and whatnot, but hopefully, yeah, these are some of the things coming up.
0: Well, and and actually, this year the, Olymp- the Tokyo Olympics has been postponed till, let's say, next year at least. Yeah. <laughs> but something like the Olympics would be—it seems like it'd be an ideal use for Miyazaki with all these inbound travelers.
1: That's one of the areas where we saw the biggest uh, potential is sustainable travel, right? I mean, pre-corona times, obviously the, the, tourism, uh, the tourism industry was booming uh, and there were more and more people who were looking for sustainable uh, travel options and tools. And so we thought, well, this is a perfect uh, marriage of, of both discovering Japan because you can find all these cool places on, on Miamisu um, and also reducing your plastic footprint as you go. Uh, so that was definitely an area that we're continuing to look into as well.
0: So you mentioned, I mean, the drop-off on tourism obviously impacted your business. Has the coronavirus impacted you in other ways?
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, a lot of our initial concept was around being outside. So you can refill your bottle on the go. Wherever you are, you can refill your bottle. Um, so there was definitely, you know, there was a period where I thought, okay, wow, well, this is this is quite serious for our, for for Zoo specifically. But, you know, I think actually looking back over this past five or six months, um, we've, See new opportunities because of coronavirus. I know it sounds like a cliche, but this whole MyMizu challenge idea came because companies were looking for digital experiences for their employees and so on. We thought, okay, well, why don't we provide that? Um, you can't do stuff in person right now at your company. Well, let's use MyMizu and, you know, save plastic, uh, build teams and do good things all remotely as well.
0: But yeah, I, uh, yeah, I imagine that must be really... Because yeah, everyone's trying to discourage random foot traffic coming in and out of small restaurants and
1: Yeah. Well, interesting. I you know, I don't think we had that many cafes and restaurants pulling out of Miami's. I, I don't think we had any if I, if I'm correct. Really? Um, which is quite surprising. Actually, no. I should sorry, I should go back on that. We did have a few cafes and restaurants pulling out of Miami's, but I think net, we we actually had growth in terms of our cafes and restaurants on board uh, in the past, I'd say, five, six months, quite significantly. And my theory there is that the cafe and restaurant industry is obviously... Being very significantly impacted by the coronavirus, so signing up to MyMizu is it doesn't really expose you to any more risk than normal, and as as a result, you get more foot traffic and it helps you to sustain your business. So we've actually seen positive growth in the past four You
0: know that does make sense because I mean they are more more willing to try new things, be more aggressive, try try to, anything to get more of their own traffic coming through. Yeah, yeah. Corona's it's really affected different startups in different and sometimes very unpredictable ways.
1: Yeah. We've had lots of so many late night discussions and things about how to navigate it. I'm sure like many of your listeners and many other organizations are in the same position. Um, And it's been a real test in in so many ways.
0: So in in Japan, rules on NGOs are, are like super strict. And I mean, I know you're not an NGO, but sometimes there can be a very binary attitude of like, is this an NGO? Are you helping the world? Or are you a company? Are you making a profit? Do you ever get pushback one way or the other? That's
1: an interesting question. You know, honestly, I think we haven't had that much pushback in that regard. I think people know that we're pushing for this mission, right? To reduce plastic consumption, to help people lead more sustainable lives. Um, And I, I I can't recall any specific... Uh, challenges in that scenario and that's
0: that's great because i mean i can tell you from a lot of the founders i work with that, i don't know there is this image that if you're making money then you're not helping the world i think that if, if you're not seeing that 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 speaks to a lot of progress being made in that in that regard
1: well you know interesting so i i used to work for an ngo uh This is probably three or four years ago. Um, And I had a great time, but I spent so much of my time essentially fundraising, right? I'd go out there, I'd, I'd talk to lots of people with money. I'd try and, you know, it just took so much time. And it takes so much time to the point where you can't do other things. And so that's why I think the whole social... Uh, entrepreneurship or social business model is just so much more effective in many cases not all cases and so i would say yeah i agree to you i agree to some extent if you're purely for profit then people may question like what what do you really want what what is going on here Um, but you know for in our case we've we've had i guess nothing super challenging in in that scenario that is good
0: um because it is one of those things there are there are some problems like MyMizu and the different business models that you're exploring that clearly you can add good. You can do some good as a startup in that structure. Uh, I mean, even if you are a pure for-profit startup, you could do good within that structure, but there, there are probably other problems that you just can't solve within that structure. Do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think that the, the, advantage of not being a purely for-profit company for us is that people want to jump in and help us out right? i think if we were like you know a, a kk covers you guys structure you'd have less people messaging you saying hey i want to help out this is really cool um, and so i think honestly it's been it's helped us having this structure that we have now in that it's more of a neutral platform i think if we were a for-profit company connecting people with free water points that th- i think people would think okay, where's, you know, where's my data going? You know, blah, blah, blah. How they making What's that? your angle on this? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So I think in, in our case, it's been, it's been very beneficial.
0: And, and you know, come to think of it. I've always thought that like the bottled water industry sort of breaks economic theory.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that. I'm going to use that on our website. I think that copy.
0: <laughs> but, but do you know what I mean? It's just, it's one of those things that it, it like the fundamental concept that underlies economic theory is that people make basically rational, self-interested decisions.
1: <laughs> and they're just, they don't. I mean, <laughs> there's no... So funny story. You know, whenever I talk to people uh, in Japan, let's say in their 50s, 60s, 70s, they tell me that buying water wasn't really a thing. You know, 20, 30, 40 years ago. It was a, a public commodity that people just drank, people didn't really pay for. And now, obviously, there's a ginormous bottled water market that is growing significantly uh, every single year. So something happened in this past, let's say, two or three decades, where we've seen this huge growth of, of bottled water, which is having a big impact.
0: Well, what happened was the power of marketing. So it, it started out with Perrier yes, yes. as as this high-end bubbly, sparkly water and, and spread from there. Um, But it was purely marketing driven and brilliant marketing minds pushing it. But it costs, I don't know, thousands of times more than tap water. It's
1: terrible for the environment. I'm just like on every rational level, it doesn't work. <laughs> it's, it is completely irrational, especially in a country like Japan, where we have some of the safest and tastiest water in the world. Just to, to give you a few stats, uh, we were working with the Waterworks in Corbett and, and their data tells us that they have something like 50 criteria for safety and, te- and taste for their tap water. For bottled water, it's much, much less. So and just from a very objective point of view, tap water is actually safer and tastier and healthier than a bottled water.
0: And I've got to say, like, like, I don't understand how tap water has become like almost the butt of a joke. I, I, I honestly believe it is like the municipal water supply is one of the great achievements of humankind. Exactly. It really is. I
1: completely agree.
0: And I, I can't quite figure out why people have like devalued it so much. Perhaps it just became a victim of its own success that it was so almost free and everyone had access to it. And so we just somehow devalue it or something. I, I don't know.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, but I, I really think, as you say, it is the power of marketing creating a market for a product or a need. But in actuality, we have that product, and it's it's almost free. It's it's quite incredible. This this story. I think we'll look back in thirty or forty years and think, wow, this is quite a chapter in, in the human story.
0: So you, you're tracking these refill stations. So, for example, are public water fountains? disappearing? Are there more of them? Are there fewer of them? What's what's going on with that?
1: Interestingly enough, I believe it was in the Tokyo subway systems where there was a significant decline in the number of public water fountains. Um, Now, I think this was NHK who did that research. So this is not our findings. But I think the theory there was that it was due to sanitation issues or potentially even terrorism related issues I, so you know there is a, a decline in in public water uh, facilities in certain places in japan i should say now on the flip side there is an increase in these quite well designed and quite cool kind of water points around the city. So if you go to Yurakucho Station, uh, just outside the Tokyo International Forum, you'll see this really cool uh, public water fountain, which is specifically for reusable bottles. And it's like this beautiful blue machine. It makes noises, it lights up, and there are more and more of these things popping up. So this is the future, I believe, of the urban space, is is these kinds of points where you can hydrate without the plastic.
0: Okay, so it's, it's still a public water fountain. You just have to bring a container. You can't put your lips on it.
1: Exactly, and these are popping up more and more. Oh, well, that's progress. Yeah, but I should say like, the scale is not huge right now. I think we need to scale up by about a thousand times, to be honest.
0: <laughs> um, let's, let's talk a bit about Japan and the, the recycling here. So what actually is the situation with pet bottles in Japan? Because I find Japan in general tends to be very ecologically Conscious, consumers have absolutely no problem sorting like ridiculous levels of recycling sorting going on. But but you see pet bottles everywhere. It, is that just my perception? Or is Japan better than other countries, worse than other countries?
1: Okay, so Japan produces roughly 25 billion, with a B, plastic bottles every single year. Uh, So that's enough to go around the world, I believe, 128 times. So the amount that we produce is huge, Um, and yes, we do recycle a lot of those. But what I can but that's just that
0: that's too big a number for me to get
1: my brain around. I mean,
0: it's but how how does that stack up like per capita to like the U.S. or Europe? Well, that's that's a good
1: question. I, I'm actually not sure of the, the per capita comparison uh, with other countries. But what I can say is that, and I mentioned this at the beginning, Japan is the second uh, largest consumer of plastic packaging per capita. And I think the the key here is that we often hear about this, the myth of recycling, right? We put everything in the bin and it gets recycled and you know, life is all good. And interestingly, Japan's recycling rate is officially, I believe, 84 or 85%, which is much higher than the global average, which is about 20%, right? And that sounds great, but this is, this is why it's so important to really like, you know, dig around a bit and understand the problem. Um, the truth is that we are burning most of the plastic we collect for recycling through a process called thermal recycling so this is essentially where you burn plastic. <laughs> yeah and you're you're literally creating thermal energy. recycling that yeah. that sounds like a bit of new speak there well, well interestingly you know i think thermal recycling is a japanese term um, in other countries it's called energy recovery so the plastic you can't do material recycling or chemical recycling with you burn for energy right whereas In Japan that is considered recycling. So we are burning the majority of the plastic that we collect from households uh, for energy Um, The other thing we're doing and I'm sure I can talk about this for three hours So I'll keep it super brief is we're exporting a lot of plastic waste to other countries Um, We're our second largest exporter of plastic waste in the world. I believe after the US Um, and so a lot of our plastic waste goes to countries in Southeast Asia where uh, in some cases, not dealt with in a, in a very responsible way.
0: Yeah, I remember, I think it was just last year, China announced they would not be accepting plastics and other trash for recycling. Exactly. And uh, it caused quite a bit of problems within the recycling supply chain all over the world.
1: Exactly. And prices to dispose of plastic increased significantly. Facilities were over, over capacity. I mean, there was a huge knock-on effect.
0: Wow, thermal recycling. Yeah, that just that that no, nah, that just doesn't sound <laughs> right. <laughs>
1: and, <laughs> and just one other anecdote, or, or there is research that shows that if you have a recycling bin in a room, let's say you take two rooms, right? one has a recycling bin and another has no recycling bin, just a regular bin, people tend to use more plastic. In the room with the recycling bin, because you think, oh, it's cool. You know, I can use this plastic and just chuck it in the bin and it'll come out. You know, it's beautiful plastic product to the other side. So it's almost making it worse if we believe in this myth. And this is why we really focus on the reduction angle and not the recycling angle, because there's a big problem here.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Well, listen, Robin, before I let you go, I want to ask you what I call my magic wand question. (laughs) Okay. And... That is, if if I gave you a magic wand and I told you that you could change one thing about Japan, anything at all, the education system, the way people think about risk, the way people think about recycling supply chains, I mean, anything at all to make it better for startups and innovation in Japan, what would you change?
1: Where I would like to see the most change is in this Space between for profit and non profit. I guess I'm in a fortunate position where we're doing something relatively unique. Um, we're trying to solve a very serious problem. Um, and what a lot of students and other young people ask me is how do you make that work? You know, are you, how do you do this whole kind of sweet spot between purpose and, and profit? And so, what I would love to do is to kind of Encourage more dialogue and, and hopefully raise more awareness that you don't have to choose one of the two because that's what I thought when I was young. I thought I had to choose: do I go and make the big money, or do I, you know, go work for NGO, government, whatever? You can do this together.
0: So, if more people knew about this kind of middle path, what would change? What do you think? What What do you think we would see happen?
1: I think we would see more strategic and systemic solutions i know this is a very generic term but i think once you have this organizations who are working in this in-between space you have a more scalable and hopefully higher impact way of solving a problem right so let me give you an example if companies say okay at the end of the year we've got some money let's donate to to charity who can then fix it it's a small impact on on the kind of on the grand scheme of things, right? Whereas if you have, let's say, a a startup that is really solving a social or environmental problem in a big way that is highly scalable, then the impact is on a completely different level. So I think for me it's it's just the the chance to really create big solutions to these big problems that we need today.
0: So that that kind of middle middle path. So I can totally understand on the startup side, on the more traditional side, the profit motive, the relentless push for optimization and profit will lead you away from the mission. What is the challenge if you're just operating as a, as a traditional NGO? So what's the advantage of that kind of middle path over the traditional NGO?
1: There are a number of challenges. One is things like the financial resources, right? You're always strapped for cash. You're always trying to figure out, you know, how to make things work. Whereas if you have that money through a, a robust kind of business model, then that solves that problem. Um, secondly is also, I mean, potentially talent as well. I mean, the, the job market in Japan is so competitive with, you know, fewer, decreasing population and so on. So if you can make it more attractive and get, you know, the top talent from these big universities who want to join some exciting tech, uh, you know, startup that is solving a problem, then you're getting the, the talent as well. So I think for me, it's maybe those two things, the financial resources and the talent.
0: All right, that makes sense. And, and actually, though, I think we are seeing more of these kind of organizations, there's a lot of accelerators that are focused on social impact startups. Uh, the Google accelerator we just announced is doing social impact startups as well. There is there there is a huge interest in this kind of middle ground between NGOs and traditional startup business models.
1: No, definitely. And there are more and more young people who are getting really into this stuff. I mean, just to give you an example, there's something called the Holt Prize, which is the world's largest um, social entrepreneurship competition for students. And that's really taking off in a big way here in Japan. Uh, there's more and more of these kinds of training programs, resources. Um, so I think it's a fantastic time to be doing this kind of thing. And I and I'd encourage any budding entrepreneurs or whatever to, to get out there and, and give it a shot, because it's a great time to be doing this in Japan.
0: Awesome. Well, listen, Robin, thanks so much for sitting down with me. I really appreciate it.
1: Right, thank you so much. I had a great time.
0: And we're back. Some of my most enjoyable interviews are the ones that go way off script and venture into tangents unknown. Oh, and by the way, the article I referred to in the show, the one that first introduced the concept that a company's sole responsibility was to increase shareholder value, that was Milton Friedman in 1970 in the New York Times. The primacy of shareholder value was not accepted thinking before then, and it's falling out of favor now, but I'll put a link to it in the show notes. It's, it's an important piece of economic history. Now, I, I am definitely not an economist, but I find economics interesting. But it's hard to talk about economics, I don't understand the minutiae well enough to dive into the details that interest real economists, and fellow economic dabblers are rarely interested in the parts that I find interesting. My Mizu, for example, is attacking a particular class of economic problem, one that almost everyone agrees is incredibly important, but that we seem unable to solve. And I believe the reason is that there's a certain class of economic problems that capitalism simply cannot solve. Of course, diving into the limits of capitalism is practically heresy, at least in the circles I run in. You would be amazed at the number of times I've been accused of being a Marxist. I mean, I've built companies, I've sold companies, I've invested in companies... My day job is teaching others how to grow their companies. My hobby is disrupting Japan, where I sit down with startup founders and talk about running, growing, and selling companies. I think my capitalist credentials are pretty f***ing solid. And yet, if you find the problems with capitalism just as interesting as the benefits of capitalism, you tend to get labeled a Marxist. But but seriously, it comes down to this. Capitalism is extremely good at solving problems that can be solved by additional consumption and almost useless for everything else. Capitalism on its own would never have given us the municipal water supply, the power grid, or sewage systems. And capitalism on its own will never solve the problems of pollution and plastic waste that MyMizu is trying to address. Now, I'm saying capitalism on its own. The profit motive most certainly can be used and should be used to help solve these problems. And that's where startups like MyMizu can help push us towards a solution. But as Robin explained, awareness alone... Doesn't work. The presence of recycling bins actually resulted in an increase in plastic consumption. No, the profit motive cannot be used to reduce consumption, but it can be used to prioritize consumption. Communities can act together to make undesirable forms of consumption expensive. This is the idea behind carbon taxes cap-and-trade, requiring manufacturers to pay the recycling costs at the time of production, or even old-fashioned five-cent bottle deposits. With these new incentives in place, the marketplace will respond in innovative ways to reduce the harmful consumption and channel those resources into more productive or at least less harmful activities. Total consumption still goes up, but hopefully we wind up in a better place. Relying on the profit motive on its own puts us in a situation much like Robin's beach cleanup crew. A small group of dedicated individuals diligently cleaning up our trash, while ten times more is washed up on the next tide. All of us really are in this together capitalists, environmentalists, you know, even the actual Marxists. And we need to work together to set things up so that today's political and market forces can be brought to bear on these problems. And then the conflict between doing good and doing well disappears. And creative startups like My Mizu can lead the way. If you want to talk more about recycling, or the wonder that is modern drinking water, Robin and I would love to hear from you. So come by disruptingjapan.com slash show173, and let's talk about it. If you leave a comment, I guarantee Robin or I, or maybe both, will respond. And hey, if you get the chance, please rate and review us on iTunes or your podcast platform of choice. But even better, if you like the show, tell people about it. Disrupting Japan is my labor of love, and we have zero advertising budget. People hear about the podcast because listeners like you enjoy it, and they tell their friends about it. But most of all, thanks for listening. And thank you for letting people interested in Japanese startups and innovation know about the show. I'm Tim Romero. And thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan.